2: This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor.
3: Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. And like I I like to uh, advise you every week, I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. And my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is in partnership with two other excellent newsletters, namely Trader Tracks, which is written by Roger Wiegand and Chen Lin, uh, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? And you can get an introductory trial uh, offer, uh, an introductory trial subscription, I should say, to all three of those newsletters, each separately. Call my assistant, Claudio Bossi, in New York at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426, or go to miningstocks.com. And I would also like to suggest that you go to jtaylormedia.com to most easily access this radio show, both either the live show or to uh, to access it from a download. You can also download, of course, on um, by iStores. That's the way I think a lot of people do it. Um, you can follow all three of those newsletters at jtaylormedia.com. Also, a lot of other things that I'm doing, some interviews that I do on television from time to time. Uh, in interviews that I do also with CEOs of promising companies. You can follow uh, what I do on Twitter under the handle Silver Stocks, Twitter, uh, J Taylor, uh, under Silver Stocks. Well, I want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. For the first hour of today's show, our sponsors are American Manganese, Arroway Energy, Clifton Star Resources, Eurasian Minerals, Goldrich Mining Company, and Prodigy Gold. I'd like to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. We now had uh, another report of some even better numbers than we've had before. It's very encouraging to know people are listening and enjoying and profiting from uh, from this program. Well, this week our show is about money. Well, I think all of our shows have something to do with money almost every week, but this week we're going to talk about the end of money or at least the end of money as we know it. My main guest this week is Thomas Greco, who has written several books on the topic of money, but his latest book, the one we want to focus on most today, is titled The End of Money and the Future of Civilization. Mr. Greco is a critic of the existing monetary structure and believes it serves to impoverish the masses. To that, I would say amen, and a lot of other guests that we've had on this show believe that as as well. He he believes that there are folks who have enormous powers – to have shaped the monetary system in a manner that benefits them uh, at the expense of the common folks. And, of course, that also uh, is a topic that we've had many, many guests on this show, people like G. Edward Griffin, Adrian Salbucci, Catherine Austin Fitz, Daniel Estulin, John Coleman, Dr. John Coleman, who's been with us, and a number of others uh, for sure have touched on this subject uh, and have uh been critical of the existing monetary system, which I believe there is no doubt it uh wrestles wealth away from those that create it, the miners, the manufacturers, the inventors, the farmers, and passes it on to the banking class and to the political class. Well, Greco has some fascinating ideas about the urgent need to decentralize government and to do away with this existing system. But he is not talking about going back to a gold standard. In fact, um we may ask him why he is not in favor of that i'm guessing it's probably has more to do with his real revolutionary ideas about changing the system perhaps he thinks going back to a gold standard would just simply allow the same people to remain in power and to do the same things over and over again to us uh, i hope we can talk about that uh, if we have the time today why he doesn't think gold is the answer um, but uh, in any event um, uh, he has many, uh, many ideas that I think you're going to find fascinating. Um, whether, you know, Mr. Greco thinks, uh, whatever he thinks about the gold standard, in two weeks, I do expect to have one person back on this show, possibly two, who are very, very much in favor of returning to a gold standard or going forward to a gold standard. I'm talking about Louis Lerman, who's expected to be with us on June 5th. And as I understand it, there's a 50-50 chance that his friend, Ron Paul, may also be joining us Uh, on June 5th to talk about, uh, of course, to talk about the return to the gold standard, no doubt about some of the same things that Mr. Greco is critical about the problems that we're seeing about an unjust monetary system. In just one moment, I'm going to play a soundbite from a British financier named John Butler, uh, who will explain why he thinks we will be inevitably heading back to a gold standard, and he thinks it could happen within one year, even. John Butler thinks that gold will have to be, or, or uh, Mr. Butler, the fellow you're going to hear from in just a few minutes, thinks that gold will need to be priced uh, somewhere between $5,000 and $10,000 uh, in order to, um, in order to uh, make this happen, uh, happen uh, to go back to a gold standard. If we do go back to a gold standard within the next few years, new emerging gold mining firms should be in a very strong position, and that would no doubt make our next guest very happy. I'm talking about Brian Kerwin. He's the president and CEO of Bonanza Gold Corp., which company is just now starting to produce gold from its copperstone mine in southwestern, uh, Arizona. Our main guest, Thomas Greco, uh, will be with me during the first, or the second half of the first hour and the first half of the second hour. Then after that, we're going to uh, listen to a discussion that Louise Yamada had with Thomas Keene and Ken Pruitt on Bloomberg Radio yesterday. I think you're not going to want to miss what Louise has to say about the current market status and where she thinks we are going to be going uh, in the next uh, little while here in the equity markets as well as the gold markets. Well, uh, for now, Justin, I'm wondering if you can go ahead and play John Butler's clip for us, please.
4: You think gold is expensive at almost $2,000 an ounce? That could turn out to be the bargain of a lifetime if the world returns to some form of gold standard. That's according to John Butler, author of The Golden Revolution, and he joins me now. John, you say a return to the gold standard, or a metal standard, is inevitable. Why?
5: Inevitable is a strong word, but if you start to connect the dots and you look at the situation today, in fact, it leads you back to a gold standard. In brief... The U.S. economy has declined very dramatically as a share of the global economy uh, since the Bretton Woods agreements broke down in the early 1970s. That's number one. Number two, what you find is that U.S. monetary policy is increasingly at odds with what other countries want. And indeed, at the recent BRIC summit in New Delhi, they issued this Delhi declaration, which specifically criticized the Fed and U.S. economic policy generally as destabilizing their economies. So you're getting a real breakdown now. Finally, if you actually look at what restores credibility and stability to a clearly destabilized global financial system, it is gold. It's the simplest way to do it. Wait a little while, someone will be a first mover, and then they will force the issue.
4: Talk us through the time frame for this because um, you say this could happen remarkably um, as early as next year.
5: I think it could happen as early as next year. And one reason why is because when the BRIC nations made this declaration recently, they also said very specifically that they are now working on forming their own international monetary fund, their own World Bank, and indeed will continue to grow their dependence on bilateral currency arrangements for trade. And they claim that they will complete a lot of this work inside of one year. It is conceivable that inside of one year, if the BRIC countries are still strongly dissatisfied with the dollar reserve standard that still prevails in the world, they will start to move formally back to
4: gold. Talk us through step by step how that is going to happen.
5: Well, there are more than one way in which this could happen. One of them is that one country becomes a clear first mover and completely surprises the entire world, including the United States by paying its currency to gold explicitly Russia is not an unreasonable country that might under certain circumstances decide to do precisely that so imagine if you will at some point say August 2013 Russia announces to the world that it will henceforth back the currency which they could rename if they wanted to by gold explicitly What happens? Well, think about it. Investors around the world, concerned about U.S. finances, concerned about U.S. economic policy, think maybe we should diversify our dollars. Maybe we should cash out some of our dollar reserves and hold these new gold-backed Russian reserves instead. Well, if that process starts in earnest and if some countries start to diversify out of dollars, other countries will have to take up the slack. What if they don't take up the slack? The dollar will decline, potentially precipitously. You can imagine a situation... In which you have another crisis meeting, say at Camp David, just as occurred to determine how to deal with the breakdown of Bretton Woods, President Nixon decided to close the gold window. What would be decided this time around? It's quite possible that if the United States sees the rest of the world moving in this direction, that the United States will simply decide it must follow along. It has no other choice other than for the dollar to lose reserve status entirely.
4: If that's the case... Why isn't gold at $10,000 an ounce?
5: It's really only going to reach that sort of magnitude uh, if indeed it becomes clear and present that the world is going to be using gold, not just as an alternative store of value, but as a de facto monetary asset in actual border uh, cross-border balance of payments transactions so I do think we're on the way to something north of 5,000 possibly north of 10,000 depending on this actual structure of this future gold standard
4: the gold market is tiny compared to the trillions and trillions of dollars worth of cash and assets sloshing around the world financial system how can countries back all of that against such a finite and tiny amount of gold the amount of gold is
5: finite by weight or volume. It's not finite by price. And as we just discussed, if gold is going to be remonetized, it's entirely reasonable that its price will rise by an order of magnitude. And in fact... If the price of gold were to rise to over $10,000 an ounce, then in fact what you would have is a market capitalization, as it were, of gold, vis-a-vis the money supply and credit volume generally, which is in line with a longer-term historical comparison. It implies
4: stability. John, thank you very much. That was John Butler, author of The Golden Revolution, talking to Reuters TV appropriately enough in the Goldsmith Hall in the City of London. I'm Jamie McGeever. This is Reuters.
3: Well, there you have some uh, very interesting, very interesting things, very interesting ideas for sure. Uh, don't let anybody tell you that there's not enough gold in circulation to go back to a uh, gold-backed monetary system. That's simply not true. In any event, uh, we do have to go to commercial break now, and when we come back, we're going to be talking to Brian Kerwin. He's the president and CEO of American Bonanza, a company that is responding to the higher gold price. A company that is starting to produce gold. We're going to talk to Brian and find out about how things are going with their Copperstone mine in southwestern Arizona. Don't go away. I'll be right back.
1: comes to business you'll find the experts here voice america business network arrowway energy is an oil-focused canadian-based production and exploration company operating in the peace river arch region of northern alberta canada with a land base of over 28,000 hectares surrounded by major oil and gas producers such as birchcliffe energy and shell canada Arroway is currently producing 650 BOE per day, 90% oil. Arroway is debt-free, cash flow positive, and funded through its 2012 drill program. Arroway is listed on the OTCQX under the symbol ARWJF and on the TSX Venture under the symbol ARW.
6: Why invest in Clifton Star Resources? Because they begin the year with excellent drilling results and high goal recovery tests on the DuParquet project. A new experience management team with proven exploration and development achievements is in place. The properties have historically produced over 1.5 million ounces of gold. They are located along the prolific Porcupine Dester Break in mining-friendly Quebec, near Rouen, Naranda. A new resource estimation will be released in May. Clifton Star is only 35 million shares outstanding and is well-funded.
0: Are you looking for a junior gold company that will give you upside exposure to major gold discovery potential, cash flow, and is located in a secure jurisdiction? Goldrich offers you a unique opportunity and controls almost the entire historic Chandelar Mining District, located in the prolific Ambler Schist Belt in Alaska. The company is applying modern-day techniques to explore the district that previously hosted four hard rock gold mines and various placer operations. Visit Goldrich on the web at www.goldrichmining.com or look us up under the ticker symbol GRMC. Prodigy Gold is transitioning from
1: Gold Explorer to Mine Developer. We are well-funded. Located in stable eastern Canada, the Magino Gold Project has a robust production profile of 250,000 ounces a year. Strong project economics with a $939 million NPV total gold production is projected to be over 2.6 million ounces with an estimated mine life of 11 years drilling is underway and the scope of the project continues to grow please visit our website www.prodigygold.com and read more prodigy gold today's discovery tomorrow's future voice america business network the bottom line in business
3: Welcome back to Pretty Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me Brian Kerwin. He's the president and CEO of American Bonanza Gold Corp. This is a company I've been following for some time now, and it's a company that has uh, managed to get into production. Not many junior mining companies are able to make that transition, but American Bonanza at least has started its production now in southwestern Arizona at the Copperstone Mine. Arizona um, Bonanza, or uh, American Bonanza, Trades under the symbol BZ, BZA in Canada, under the symbol ABGFF in the U.S. 200 million shares outstanding at $0.30 cents a share. Gives it a market cap of around $60 million. And uh, it's a company I think is well worth listening to and, and following. So welcome back, Brian, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Thank you, Jay. Pleasure to be here. Really good to have you, uh, I know that you are in production now. You've made some announcements to that effect. You're not really full uh, commercial production yet. You're uh, sort of, I guess, you call it the commissioning stage um, of production. I believe uh, you have a milk capacity of about 450 tons per day. How close are you to achieving that sort of full production or commissioning stage, uh, graduating from the commissioning stage to the commercial production stage?
7: we're closer every day to hitting our design levels jay the uh... the the feasibility study uh... which was completed just over two years ago anticipated four hundred and fifty ton a day throughput so that's our target for the entire operation the plant that we installed will do substantially more than that and uh... that provides a basis for our growth strategy at copperstone once we hit design levels um... but basically the entire operation now can run at design except for the underground mine, and when, when you build one of these, you're, you've got a, about five or six departments, all of which have to get up to design level, so something's going to be done first, and really the mill was done first, and something's going to be done last, and the mine is, is in that situation right now. Operating at about half a design, um, we've spent a considerable amount of uh, time um, studying um, the underground mine and, and what it needs to get up to design and we are in the midst of implementation of a number of um things that we'll we we've uh, are very confident will bring it to uh design and we sort of have a, a soft target of uh of you know sort of three months uh from now mm-hmm. uh to reach that point. So you're uh, pulling enough ore now
3: to, to run the mill at about half capacity. Is that, is that safe to say?
7: Well, we've had a, yeah, well, we, that's right. We've had a, um, a, uh, a stockpile to work off of. So the mill has uh-huh. to actually run at, at design capacities for uh, weeks at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, so we know, we know it'll do it. It'll actually, we, we're pretty confident it'll do considerably more than that. But, uh, but right now the mine, you know, is, is improving all the time. So the number is constantly changing.
3: How many people do you have working on site
7: uh, that's, these are all all these numbers are changing uh, constantly yeah. at this point in a mind 's life but uh... We're at about 80, uh, cl- and climbing right now.
3: Mm-hmm. And do you work, uh, how many shifts do you mine? Is it just a one shift, two shifts, or what? It's,
7: it's two shifts. There's a law in Arizona that, uh, that stipulates, um, uh, you know, how, how long we can, we can, uh, run a shift for. <clears throat> excuse me. And the, uh, the state legislature in Arizona has just, uh, changed that. Uh-huh. Although we're waiting for, uh, the effects to come through. But, uh, we're running um, um, two shifts now, and we'll continue to run two shifts, but they'll be longer shifts. So the mine will basically go 24 hours once uh, once that's enacted. Hmm, okay. What are the eight hour shifts now? Right. Um, what sort of average grades are you pulling
3: now at this point and in, in time, Brian? And and will that change um, as you get into full commercial production?
7: Uh, well, it'll always it'll always vary as you work your way through sure. an ore body. They're not uniform. Um, but, uh, you know, we've, uh, we, we've, we've, it's a tough, at this stage in a mine life, when, uh, it's so new, it's, it's tough to, uh, come up with a number because we just don't have enough history and because we've done some things that make the numbers confusing. So we've got, we've got grade numbers as sampled in the underground mine. Remember, this is a high grade mine with free gold in it, so there are nugget effects and things right. like that. Mill numbers are better. Um, so we've got we've got you know assays from our uh, underground mine we've got assays as as the material moves through the plant um, thus far you know we've we've been above and most by most metrics we've been above uh life of mine uh, average grades um, but for the first quarter uh for the mill uh, those numbers are heavily skewed by a couple of things uh one is that during the first quarter we were uh starting up um, and commissioning the mill um, and so we ran, you know, water first to see where there's leaks and then you run barren rock through the thing, uh, just to make sure everything works and you're not blowing gold up into the tailings impoundment and then you sort of ease into higher and higher grade material going through the plant. So you have a, uh, a const, you know, a, um, a tonnage uh, going through the plant that always gets counted as tonnage through the plant, even though it is somewhat some of it is intentionally zero grade or low grade material. Additionally, in low spots in the mill and in the liners in the grinding mills and things, it's well known, you know, free gold will hang up in there and you never really know how much gold you've got uh in there until you tear the thing apart later on. So Mm -hmm. the first quarter it's um heavily skewed numbers uh for the plant, although the plant really gives us our best numbers because uh it isn't uh uh subject to such a nugget effect it's been ground up and mixed up and, right. and things like that. Um, but all I can really say is that we're we're above um, average grades for the mine life as anticipated mm-hmm. by the feasibility. And you know, April will be a better month. We're working on those numbers now and as we go forward um, you know that that will uh become more clear. But thus far, you know, pleasant surprises. Yeah.
3: Well, you're producing now a concentrate, I believe, uh, and shipping that out. Uh, what's the time? How much time does it take before you get paid for that concentrate?
7: The concentrate payments generally come in two uh, uh, categories. First, the provisional payment, which comes generally maybe three weeks, plus or minus, um, from delivery. And then the final settlement, which is after their processing, can be two or three months out. Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
7: any chance that you'll go to producing a doré bar at some point in the future? Yeah, there's we have we have a number of plans for that type of thing. Um, We 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 don't have cyanide on site for two reasons. One, you know, the ore responds quite well to our gravity and flotation circuit. Mm -hmm. Um, It will respond better to cyanide, but. You have to remember that we've moved it at quite a fast pace to get here. We finished the feasibility study just over two years ago. And in that two years, funded, um, permitted, built, started this operation up and are in commissioning now, um, getting closer to the end of that. So obviously in order to move at that pace, we needed the permits fairly fast. And we mm-hmm. did obtain the permits fairly fast. And one of the reasons that we did is that we didn't install a cyanide circuit had mm-hmm. we done so, we would be talking right now about how we hope to get our permits pretty soon, mm-hmm. so we made that, that conscious decision to go in that order for speed, yeah. but nothing precludes us from changing that once we're in uh, production at design levels, and we have you know some, some plans to uh, to pursue that.
3: Yeah, I noticed you put out a, a press release that you are getting eighty-four percent recoveries. Is that 84 percent recoveries through uh, gravity, or is that the end result through the at the after you've had it processed uh, through the um, you know your concentrate processed by the refinery?
7: That was that was both sides, the gravity side and the flotation side mm-hmm. at the plant. Mm-hmm. And uh, and like I say, those are the first quarter numbers. In the plant, you know, because of the way you have to start one of these up, it's it's routine. Um, those numbers are quite skewed. Uh, what we what we can focus on is what the tailings grades are, mm-hmm. and they maintain we're maintaining a low, consistent tailings grade, which means that the gold going into the plant, you know, either is hanging up in the liners or something, sure. which is normal, or it's going in the concentrate bag. So that's our real, you know, sort of policeman on site is what the uh, tailings grades are, and we sample that constantly, and we're happy with that. And, and like I say, as, as April numbers um, start to come together and then May, June, July, uh, those, those numbers will all uh, become more clear, but we're happy with, uh, with the mill's performance today. Mm-hmm. You had uh, 712
3: uh, ounces of production in your first, uh, your first shipment. Um, I, I imagine you can't really comment on, on what your projections are, but what are you projecting for this year in terms of uh, production?
7: The, uh, that's right. I can't really, but but what I can say is that once we hit design, and we're thinking again about three months from now for that, um, we will be in fully into year one of the feasibility study, and uh, the feasibility study anticipates year one at thirty six thousand ounces, so that would put it about three thousand ounces a month, and that's really our target for um, for what, that would commence once we hit full design. So mm-hmm. our you know those years from the feasibility study will not coincide with calendar years
3: mm-hmm. you had uh, i think talked about at one point in time something like forty six thousand ounces of production during the first three years and tailing off later. Has that uh, changed a bit uh,
7: no, that really hasn 't changed that's that 's the average uh, those, those numbers come from the feasibility study mm-hmm. uh, thus far we haven 't seen anything to uh, suggest to us that you know the, the, that we need to make major changes to those uh, those plans and those estimates they all seem to be uh um, fairly uh, reliable at this point mm-hmm. so we haven't made any changes but um, we the deposits wide open in all directions and once we get the mine to design uh we're going to start an underground drilling campaign with a drill rig that we own uh that's on site now mm, and uh and and so after that goes to work it, it will because it's going to be close to the ore bodies um, we 're going to be able to drill fairly rapidly or make progress fairly rapidly with this underground drill and so once it goes to work for six or eight months you know it 's at that point that we may uh, be announcing some changes to those targets mm-hmm. and your cost
3: estimate a cash cost estimate earlier on uh, through feasibility was four hundred and fifteen dollars that Does that still seem to be in the ballpark?
7: Um, yes, that still seems to be a ballpark uh, cash production cost number. The feasibility also estimated a total production cost of uh, $624. And thus far as we're commissioning, you know, the the ounces are not coming out to come up with a dollars per ounce number, but we are spending the dollars to operate the facility, which uh, are close to uh, what the target numbers were. So our anticipation is that when the ounces come up, uh, again, in a couple, three, four months, um, then you know that th- those numbers should be realized. So again, very early days, but right now nothing major staring us in the face to suggest that those numbers are off.
3: Right. Well, certainly. I mean, the the listener can do their own uh, arithmetic. If you're looking at the $415 cash cost, you can name your gold price wherever it is now at around 1500, 1550, something like that. Uh, you could figure out what the cash flow coming from this operation would be if you can do 36 to 46,000 ounces a year and uh, certainly it is uh, not too far away from from where your market cap is now, your annual cash flows. I would guess that uh, this would make this a very inexpensive mine, but one of the things, of course, I think your, the markets are going to penalize you to a certain extent, Brian, in that you are a relatively small producer uh, and, uh, and of course, you're just starting up, but, but you do have, as you point out, lots of uh, exploration potential and you have the ability to expand that mill substantially as well.
7: Uh, that's right, Jay. Well, the mill—the mill actually, right now, uh, to run at a higher tonnage would only need a modification to a, to our permitting, which is what we would start as soon as we get to design in a couple, three months, and uh, it could it could go up rather substantially with what's in place right now. So, um, so we're aiming for that. Um, but again, it'll be once once we get. Um, uh, through to design, get that drill working. That's what'll justify um, that expansion. But yes, economically compared to Bonanza, uh, Copperstone is huge uh, compared to lots of mines around the world and sort of standards that, that people look at. It is small, um, but there's there's we have uh, substantial um, expansion potential basically in all directions, and we have. Uh, a uh, uh, plan in place now that will start with that underground drill rig again in two or three or four months, um, but then that that exploration campaign will carry on uh, for a couple of years to uh, um, start to quantify the ultimate upside potential for Copperstone, which you know we believe um, is is apparent and uh, and substantial. Um, on the on the flip side of the coin, though, um, while it's a compact operation, there are advantages to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, our uh, non-material number, but our our diesel bill um, runs between fifty and sixty thousand dollars a month at, mm-hmm. at Copperstone. So, if diesel prices double from here, uh, it will have very little impact on the um, the uh, economics of Copperstone. So, there are advantages to mm-hmm. being compact.
3: Yeah, no doubt about it. Well, I think one of the things that uh, I think is in your favor is that you are able to, or seemingly able now, to transition from an exploration company to a production company. So I think that's that's very very important. Uh, And uh, you are in a position now, if I understand correctly, Brian, to grow organically. That is to grow, um, you know, from cash flow. Is that right? Are you going to need to issue more shares?
7: Well, we would be obviously, with everything we've been talking about. The uh, economic performance of Copperstone should provide us with uh, uh, quite an, a strong ability to grow organically, and that's that's our current plan. Uh, you can't you can't you know preclude anything happening a year from now or six months from now. I mean, you don't know what opportunities are going to come. But right now, we do have a uh, corporate growth strategy that will be run in parallel. With the Copperstone growth strategy and again we'll start around that same time when the whole operation hits design. That's the point at which Copperstone can start working on expanding, uh, its throughput. But, uh, but then my corporate management team will be able to free up from Copperstone more and, uh, and, and employ itself in the corporate growth, uh, plans that we have. And they're quite specific and, uh, and, and quite exciting. Uh, and quite aggressive. Um, our, our plan is to have a second operation, similar to Copperstone, in production within three years. Uh-huh. and uh, That's aggressive, but one has to remember we just did that, and so uh, we think we can do it again.
3: Okay. Brian, unfortunately, we're out of time. I'm really thankful to you for coming on, uh, updating our listeners on your story. It is an exciting story. I think really low-priced. All the mining shares have gotten hit hard, but this is one I think that if uh, if you guys are successful – shareholders are going to make a lot of money from this point on most likely. So uh, I want to thank you very much. Where can people track you as at Ameri- what's your website?
7: Uh the website is www.americanbonanza.com.
3: Very good. Well, thank you Brian. We'll look to have you on again sometime for another update. Thank you very much. Folks, don't go away. We're going to be coming right back with Thomas Greco, a uh, very interesting uh thesis about the end of money. Very very interesting. Don't go away. We'll be right back.
1: Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Arrowway Energy is an oil-focused, Canadian-based production and exploration company operating in the Peace River Arch region of northern Alberta, Canada, with a land base of over 28,000 hectares, surrounded by major oil and gas producers such as Birchcliffe Energy and Shell Canada. Arroway is currently producing 650 BOE per day, 90% oil. Arroway is debt-free, cash flow positive, and funded through its 2012 drill program. Arroway is listed on the OTCQX under the symbol ARWJF and on the TSX Venture under the symbol ARW.
6: Why invest in Clifton Star Resources? Because they begin the year with excellent drilling results and high goal recovery tests on the du Parquet project. A new experience management team with proven exploration and development achievements is in place. The properties have historically produced over 1.5 million ounces of gold. They are located along the prolific Porcupine Dester Break in mining-friendly Quebec, near Rouen, Naranda. A new resource estimation will be released in May. Clifton Star is only 35 million shares outstanding and is well-funded.
0: Are you looking for a junior gold company that will give you upside exposure to major gold discovery potential, cash flow, and is located in a secure jurisdiction? Goldrich offers you a unique opportunity and controls almost the entire historic Chandelier Mining District, located in the prolific Ambler Schist Belt in Alaska. The company is applying modern-day techniques to explore the district that previously hosted four hard rock gold mines and various placer operations. Visit Goldrich on the web at www.goldrichmining.com or look us up under the ticker symbol GRMC. Prodigy Gold is transitioning from
1: gold explorer to mine developer. We are well-funded. Located in stable eastern Canada, the Magino Gold Project has a robust production profile of 250,000 ounces a year. Strong project economics with a $939 million NPV. Total gold production is projected to be over 2.6 million ounces with an estimated mine life of 11 years. Drilling is underway, and the scope of the project continues to grow. Please visit our website, www. ProdigyGold.com and read more. Prodigy Gold, today's discovery, tomorrow's future. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business.
2: You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor.
3: The times and the good times. I'm your host Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me today, for the first time, Thomas Greco. Mr. Greco is a writer, consultant, networker who has, for more than three decades, been working at the leading edge of transformational restructuring, and is regarded as one of the leading experts in monetary theory and history, credit clearing systems, complementary currencies, and community economic development. Uh, he has uh, traveled widely in Europe, Asia and the Americas, lecturing, teaching and advising. He's been a speaker at numerous conferences and led many workshops. He is the author of numerous books and articles. His most recent book and the one we want to focus on today uh, primarily is The End of Money and the Future of Civilization. Uh it is both descriptive of the essence of money and its historical evolution, uh, and prescriptive of actions that can be taken by communities, businesses and governments to enhance economic stability through the liberation of the exchange process. Uh, Mr. Greco holds an MBA from the University of Rochester and a bachelor's degree in chemical engineering from Villanova University. Welcome, uh, Thomas. Really good to have you with me.
8: Happy to be here, Jay. Uh,
3: really uh, interesting. Your book is fascinating, and I think I saw you on a YouTube clip somewhere, and I said, I've got to get this guy on the show. Uh, we are at a time, I think, when when there's a growing recognition there are a lot of problems with the existing uh, monetary structure. Um, I would like to spend the first half hour of today, perhaps, talking about the end of money, and then perhaps spending the second half talking about the future of civilization. Um, it's very difficult for me uh, to conceive of a world without money. I think it's got to be difficult for anybody to to think about a non-monetary world. Virtually everything we do has a monetary aspect to it, uh, so it's just sort of difficult not to see money being around. I'm wondering if we could perhaps start out by asking you to define money, uh, because that may be a, a clarification, might might help us sort of understand where where you're going in your book. I know it isn't so simple. You know, we think of money, it's the stuff we carry around in our pockets, or it's uh, a little more mystical, uh, those uh, electronic things that we see in our accounts, but... It, interestingly enough, as Ron Paul was asking Alan Greenspan what money was, and Alan Greenspan, ahead head of the Federal Reserve, couldn't tell him very well. So <laughs> how do you define money?
8: Well, money has become ever more ethereal as it has evolved over the centuries. Uh, money is actually today just credit. It's an information system that we use to uh, to deploy human effort and to compensate one another for goods and services that we exchange. Mm-hmm. But, let me go back in history a little bit and describe the evolution of money, sure, or the evolution of the uh, of the of the exchange process. Uh, we talk about uh, the end of money in two ways first of all it 's the end of money as we 've known it, the end of political money, uh, monopolized credit, national currencies, and also in terms of the uh, the etherealization of money, and it's becoming uh, merely an information system. To begin with, reciprocal exchange was restricted to direct barter. I've got something you want, you've got something I want. Mm -hmm. We make the swap and everybody's happy. Mm -hmm. The problem with barter is that it's limited, that uh, we each have to have something the other wants, otherwise we can have no barter transaction. Mm -hmm. So what happened uh, initially is that various commodities that were generally useful uh, served the role as exchange media in in the colonies, for example, we had many different things being used as money uh, as exchange media, tobacco, sugar, uh, animal skins, bullets, nails, uh, all kinds of things that were generally useful mm-hmm. uh, eventually, of course, people settled on precious metals as being uh, a more convenient uh, commodity to, to deal in. Uh, but you know, in, in post-war Europe, uh, what often served as money was cigarettes, Hershey bars, nylon stockings, things that the GIs had, uh, ready access to through the PX. And, uh, those went into general circulation when the money system broke down, uh, in Europe after the war. But, uh, You know, when we talk about using gold or silver as money, we're still talking about a barter transaction. Mm -hmm. It's one thing, it's one thing for another. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole mystique about uh, gold that has risen up over the years. Uh, Gold is really uh, a fetish. Now, from commodity money, uh, when banking developed, we moved into symbolic money which was basically a warehouse receipt. You would take your gold and deposit it with a bank or a goldsmith, and you would get a receipt for that, which said you had so much gold on deposit, and you could claim it any time by turning in the receipt. Uh, or you could then do transactions by passing the paper receipts around, and whoever happened to hold the receipt could then claim the gold. So this this money was paper money, symbolic of... Uh, commodity money on deposit, but then we moved into an era where there was a great leap forward with the invention of credit money. Uh, basically, the symbolic money monetized the value or uh, created paper on the basis of the value of the gold that was on deposit, mm-hmm. but bankers soon learned uh, that they could monetize the value inherent in other collateral assets as well. So you could go to a bank and say, uh, I want to buy a, a farm, and I need uh, so much money to do that, and the bank would create the money and then uh, deposit it to your account. So now you had money being created on the basis of the value of the farm. Mm-hmm. Now, that's less liquid, of course, mm-hmm. but uh, it was a great leap forward because it gave us a flexible supply of money, mm-hmm. a flexible exchange medium. And so the creation of credit money was a great leap forward. However, it opened up the door for greater abuse because mm-hmm. the creation of credit money has never been very transparent and it's become less transparent as time has gone on. So every country now has a central bank uh, which is basically the head of a banking cartel and uh, the banks create money by making loans but quite often... Uh, they make loans on the basis of insufficient or inadequate collateral. For example, when a bank buys a government bond or when the Federal Reserve buys government bonds, it's creating money uh, on the basis of nothing of real value. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think anybody believes that the U.S. government debts will ever be paid off, uh, much less uh, reduced. We're in this uh, whirlpool of debt that has... Uh, Going that has been going on all all over the world. You ever ask yourself the question why uh, every country of the world is in debt? Why every government in the world has debt? Uh, Why is it necessary for a country to have debt uh, when we have great prosperity in the West? Mm -hmm. The problem is the centralized control of money and banking. mm -hmm. Okay,
3: so that's that's and and up until a certain point, uh, Thomas, you know. Uh, I would say up until 1971 when Richard Nixon took us off the gold standard, uh, the gold back, backing of money sort of, to an extent, helped to control that, that relentless, uncontrolled creation of money and credit out of nothing. Um, and, and then when we went off of that standard, we started to see, I mean, I can remember when I was a young man, credit cards were not that common. I can remember my father saying they're not a good idea. Maybe you could have one to buy gasoline as long as you paid it back. At the end of the month, it wasn't so bad. But then everybody started getting credit, and bankers started making a whole lot of money by giving credit to people that weren't credit worthy in the short run. And then we saw what's happened most recently with the housing debacle, where basically we socialized and asked the masses to pay for Uh, for the abuses of the banking system that you're talking about, I think. Uh, and, and so, you know, there are those people that would argue that if we just had stayed on some sort of a, uh, an asset-backed monetary system rather than a liability monetary system that we could have held in check. We, I had, for example, uh, Richard Duncan on this show not long ago, a pretty well-known writer in the financial world who argues that we should have done that, but now having, having, uh, let you know let the cat out of the bag so to speak we're we're not going to go back to a gold standard we're going to have to do something uh that is forward looking and and hence you know my interest in talking to you because i know you have uh, a lot of ideas about how we can evolve into something better but i i hear what you're saying the centralization and the power in the hands of the few to control the monetary system but backing up a, a just a, a second you mentioned that money equals credit and i agree with that certainly that's the way the system has evolved but isn't there a certain portion of that monetary system that is still a store of value? For example, um, you know, you work hard, you save your money, you, you produce a profit, and so is it all credit, or or is there some store of value in that money in that monetary system as well?
8: Okay, well, you're absolutely right in what you say. The uh, the link to gold was a uh, restraint upon governments. Uh, and central banks uh, to inflate the currency, mm-hmm. and once Nixon removed that, that was the last step in the abandonment of that, that kind of restraint, mm-hmm. but uh, there are other approaches to restraint rather than going back to uh, a link to gold,
7: mm-hmm. uh,
8: but uh, the basic problem is that money is created when banks make loans, and they make loans at interest. Mm-hmm. So you have everything being driven by the compound interest formula. This is an exponential mm-hmm. growth function. Mm-hmm. And so the banks have to continually find additional ways to indebt the people or the companies or the government. Mm-hmm. Somebody has to borrow money in the circulation in order to keep this uh, system going mm-hmm. because there's never enough money in circulation in order for everybody to pay what is owed. So we're, we're on this... Uh, this escalator of of debt expansion mm-hmm. and every country of the world is in the same boat. Mm-hmm. Uh you mentioned the the housing uh bubble. Mm-hmm. Well, this was a this was a bubble created by the banks. Absolutely. Because they as I say have to find new ways of encumbering uh the economy with debt. So in this particular round, they decided, well, let's uh, let's make real estate the basis for creating additional debt. So we'll invite anybody and everybody to come and buy real estate, and we'll create mortgage debt in order for them to be able to do it. Well, eventually, you get to the point where uh, the debt cannot be paid. Some of the people that bought those uh, uh, real estate uh, parcels uh, were in default, and so you had the, the collapse of the bubble. Mm-hmm. And we've seen it over and over again. Before that, we had the dot-com bubble. Absolutely. Uh, before that we we invented or the banks invented uh, student loans. Mm-hmm. You know, when I when I was a college student there was no such thing as a student loan. Mm-hmm. You either had to work your way through or your family had to pay for you sure. to go. And uh basically what happens is uh when you create these credit bubbles you just uh expand the uh the market price of the particular asset that's involved. So We've run up the price of the college education. We've run up the price of, uh, real estate, uh, housing and commercial real estate. And, uh, what's next? You know, what happened with this last bubble collapse is instead of letting the banks, uh, go bust because they're the ones that created the problem in the first place, uh, the government stepped in and, and swapped government debt for the bad private debt. Mm-hmm. So banks have to encumber either the private sector or the public sector with additional debt in order to keep this uh, exponential growth uh, of of debt going. And the problem is that when everybody is trying to uh, meet their, their payments on their debt, uh, companies are tearing up more of the landscape, trying to exploit more resources, uh, trying to dominate more markets, trying to expand their sales uh, and reduce their costs, so you have this uh, this debt imperative driving a growth imperative. Mm-hmm. And so economists like to talk in terms of economic growth as being the way out of our problems. Mm-hmm. Well, on a, fi- on a finite planet, you can only grow so far and then you reach maturity. You have to level off and, and reach a steady state. Mm-hmm. So we're moving into an era of a steady state economy. One way or another, that has to happen. We cannot continue to exploit the uh, natural resources and to pollute the earth and the uh, air and the water as we have been. Mm-hmm. You know, Alvin Toffler, 30 years ago, in his book uh, *The Third Wave*, talked about the three, wa- three waves of civilization. We had the agricultural civilization, where we began to produce uh, um, uh, food surpluses, and then we had the industrial civilization. Uh, where we had a tremendous expansion in technology and production of all kinds of things. But he said, uh, 30 years ago that this industrial civilization is finished, that we're moving into the third wave. And it's been variously called the information age and the age of Gaia. Uh, I call it the butterfly society. Mm-hmm. This, this is now emerging and it has to, uh, it has to involve, uh, a movement to a steady-state economy. We've mastered the production problem. We're able to produce enormous quantities of stuff, a lot of it that nobody needs and nobody wants, and we're creating pockets of poverty in the midst of this plenty. The problem now is distribution, not production. And, you know, the United States is unique in, in one way, well, many ways, but in this particular way that I have in mind, uh, you drive around and you see all of these storage units where yes. people store their excess stuff. <laughs> you don't see that in Asia, you don't see that in Europe. It's uh-huh. it's a uniquely American phenomenon. Uh-huh. We've got so much stuff we don't know what to do with it. Mhm. Mhm. No
3: doubt about it. It is certainly true. But going back to this credit bubbles, uh, the bubbles that we've had, um, You know, it it seems to, you know, you said the bankers caused it. I would say the central bank caused it. Mr. Greenspan pumped money into the central banks, and if I'm a CEO of a bank, it's uh, I have to try to maximize profits. That's my mandate, right? So I've got to find ways to lend the money, as you say, to try to grow profits for the bank. Now, uh, I put this question to uh, Robert Prechter, who was on my show in the past. I said, well, if Greenspan... Um, or, or if Nixon hadn't taken us off the gold standard in 1971, wouldn't things have been different? Would we would we have avoided this enormous amount of indebtedness? He said, yes, but Nixon didn't have a choice. And he argued that Nixon didn't have a choice because the society was demanding that sort of free ride, that easy way out. Uh, any thoughts about that?
8: Well, they always like to put the blame on society, put the blame on the people, instead of putting the blame where it belongs. Mm-hmm. And the blame belongs with those who control the, the money power. Yeah. You know, if you control the power to create money, you control everything. And in fact, uh, Reginald McKenna, who was the president of the Midland Bank in England years ago, said those who create and issue money and credit direct the policies of governments and hold in the hollow of their hands the destiny of the people. And uh, you may have heard of Carol Quigley. Carol Quigley sure. was a... Uh, a government advisor, and a professor at Georgetown University.
3: Mm-hmm.
8: Uh, Bill Clinton praised Quigley as being his uh, foremost mentor when uh, when Clinton accepted the presidential nomination back in 92. Uh, Quigley wrote a book called uh, Tragedy and Hope. Yes. And that book was published in 1966. You've probably had other guests who've talked about this before.
3: Yes, I have a copy uh, of it. Mm-hmm.
8: But there's there's one very telling quote from that book that really sums up the whole situation. He said, The powers of financial capitalism had a far-reaching plan, nothing less than to create a world system of financial control in private hands, able to dominate the political system of each country and the economy of the world as a whole. Mm. And their secret is that they have annexed from governments, monarchies, and republics the power to create the world's money.
3: Mm-hmm.
8: Now, that is absolutely true, and that's the situation that we're in.
3: Mm-hmm.
8: Now, you, you talk about the central banks. The Federal Reserve is our central bank. Mm-hmm. Uh, every country of the world has a central bank. Uh, we've, they've all been lured into this system uh, where you have... Uh, Uh, a central bank in in cahoots with the government. Absolutely. And basically, this goes back to the founding of the Bank of England in 1694. Mm -hmm. The basic arrangement was that the government gets to deficit spend rather than directly tax the people, Mm -hmm. while the banks get the privilege of creating money and charging interest on it. Mm -hmm. So that's the collusive arrangement involved in central banking, and this is what we have to get around.
3: Yeah, definitely. And, of course, that's that's what your book is about as much as anything. You do a great job in your book, I think, of outlining a lot of the topics that we've talked about on this show in the past uh, about the, this growing centralization of power in the hands of the few. And uh, it, it's a global phenomenon, as you point out. And uh, But the hope is there as well. And this is why I think it's very important not just to wring our hands but to look at the possibilities of how technology and other uh, things that are changing in society have, you know, can can work in either in a positive direction or a, a negative direction. I'm talking in terms of individual uh, individuality and liberty and those things that we have hold dear. At least those things that our founding fathers held dear to a great extent, anyway, and were written into our constitution, which seems to be uh, increasingly ignored by our by by the powers that be. But in your book on page, well, one, we're lo-
8: lo- we're losing it all, Jay, because the we're we're feeding a cancer and starving the body. Yeah. You know, we're we're feeding this cancerous system, trying to keep it going, and uh, lavishing resources on the military-industrial complex and the financial sector, and starving uh, productive private enterprise for credit.
3: Yes. Well, there's no doubt. Uh, I absolutely believe you're you're right about that. There's no question about that. But uh, your book provides some some room for hope, and we do have to go to a commercial break here. I think uh, very soon. But on page one, um, there's there's some a couple of really great quotes. Uh, I think this is something that you've read uh, written. You said, "When I speak about the end of money, I'm referring to the growing recognition that money has become nothing more than an information system, and to the emergent mechanisms of managing exchange information outside of the conventional banking system and without the use of political monies." And then you went on to quote, and we do have to go to a break now. When we come back, I want to read this quote from uh, D. Hawk, uh, the CEO of uh, Emeritus of uh, Visa International Bank, and it's a it's a wonderful quote. I think it's a very very helpful, very optimistic quote. Uh, but I want to read it, and then I want to ask you, how do we get from here to there? How do we how do we get from this centralized uh, imprisonment to one of of uh, individuality and liberty and freedom. So we do have to go to commercial break. When we come back, uh, more, don't go away. This is a fascinating discussion with Thomas Greco. We'll be right back.
1: The Business Community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. Arrowway Energy is an oil-focused, Canadian-based production and exploration company operating in the Peace River Arch region of northern Alberta, Canada, with a land base of over 28,000 hectares, surrounded by major oil and gas producers such as Birchcliff Energy and Shell Canada. Arroway is currently producing 650 BOE per day, 90% oil. Arroway is debt-free, cash flow positive, and funded through its 2012 drill program. Arroway is listed on the OTCQX under the symbol ARWJF and on the TSX Venture under the symbol ARW.
2: Why
6: invest in Clifton Star Resources? Because they begin the year with excellent drilling results and high goal recovery tests on the DuParquet project. A new experience management team with proven exploration and development achievements is in place. The properties have historically produced over 1.5 million ounces of gold. They are located along the prolific Porcupine Dester Break in mining-friendly Quebec near Rouen-Noranda. A new resource estimation will be released in May. Clifton Star is only 35 million shares outstanding and is well funded.
1: Prodigy Gold is transitioning from gold explorer to mine developer. We are well-funded. Located in stable eastern Canada, the Magino Gold Project has a robust production profile of 250,000 ounces a year. Strong project economics with a $939 million NPV. Total gold production is projected to be over 2.6 million ounces with an estimated mine life of 11 years. Drilling is underway, and the scope of the project continues to grow. Please visit our website, www. ProdigyGold.com and read more. Prodigy Gold, today's discovery, tomorrow's future.